Peter Knight, and today I'm speaking with Paul Penner from Focus Performance Psychology. Now, Paul's a sports psychologist, and he's had a huge background in helping Swimming Australia. He's uh, been the, the head sports psych on the Australian swim team at the Beijing Olympics in 2008, the 2006 Melbourne Commonwealth Games, as well as the World Championships in 2004, 2005, 2007. And in fact, I first met Paul at New South Wales Institute of Sport, where he came in as a sports psychologist in 2001. And Paul, over that time, I've really had the pleasure of, of watching what you've been doing, how you've been developing your craft in different sports, and I really want to thank you for joining me today. Pete, always a pleasure. Uh, always really enjoy working with um, athletes that I, and coaches that I collaborate with, and, and I think that's a big part of the way that I approach um, my job. It's not just me coming in and, and sharing my opinions and going, oh, this is... Um, <laughs> And I have to tell you exactly what you get. For me, it's been a bit of a lifelong journey in terms of that growth and that collaboration and sharing. And I actually take a lot out of um, my relationships with my athletes and my coaches. And it's always a joy and a pleasure to, to talk and share with you, Pete. Yeah. What led you to sports psychology? I think a number of different things. Um, when, I, when I left Year 12, then started studying... Um, PE and sports science and there was a couple of things that happened uh, while in those two years of studies that then pushed me towards or I was certainly more interested in, in the mental approach and, rather than just the physical and I think some of that was probably my own athletic experience. I uh, grew up in country Victoria, was a pretty good athlete for a country athlete but any time I then got to the city um, there was certainly a, a decrease or a, in my performance. I really didn't uh, make that next step under pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there was also some work that I was doing with the VIS and just testing athletes and watching how that they coped with pressure and having two very similar athletes um, being tested and looking at one step up and, you know, I remember watching these two rowers. One guy broke the bolts that held the ergo to the ground and then the other guy just did okay. Just so happens the guy who broke the bolts was a two-time Olympic gold medalist. Um, So there's something significantly different between the mental approach of those athletes that are good and those that are really good. Um, And and getting that world-class performance or getting that personal excellence out um, is a big part of, of what I look for in the way I work with athletes. That's fantastic. And I know that you did some research a little while ago that looked to answer the question that we're really proposing with this series of podcasts, and that is what separates out the very good athletes or performers in any field from the very best. And do you, did you find, tell me a little bit about what you found out and do those concepts that you find out, do they tend to apply across sport and outside of sport as well? When I was at the Institute of Sport, um, it was just a great um, access to high-quality athletes in large quantities, um, which was one of those, those rare opportunities. And one of the things was is that we were always looking at gathering some information and doing some research. And mm. rather than just doing questionnaires, 
I like a really personal approach where I can get to sit down and I get to fire questions at an athlete and really get inside their head and understand the way that they think. So uh, it was probably the end of 2002, start of 2003. I started interviewing athletes that had finished at a top four at a world championships or top four at an Olympic Games, wanting to determine whether there was a significant difference in the way those athletes thought compared to athletes that were just outside the top 10 or possibly top 20 at the similar performance. Mm. And we then um, taped, videotaped the interviews. We then had the, the content of the interviews um, typed out, and then we look for patterns and themes through those texts, those transcripts of those interviews. And there was five things that then came out as, as common themes. Now, most athletes have a combination of those five things, but we found that the elite, elite, the best-performed athletes had more of those things. And, in fact, um, looking back with my experience now, almost 10 years on since conducting those interviews, I'd be looking for a couple of other traits now that, um, with the, the performance experience that I've had by the Olympic Games and some more world championships and more world champion athletes, I'd be looking for extra qualities now. So the, the original five things that we came up with was that these elite athletes, the best performing athletes, did the basics really well. And that includes things like, from a mental point of view, controlling the controllable. Now, it's one of those catchphrases, but then to to do it when you're under pressure that's one of the keys, so that they focus on themselves, they don't get caught up with the achievement, they don't get caught up with other competitors, they don't get caught up with what other people think, they just come back to focus on themselves. So does that imply some level of emotional control that they don't get too oh, excited or whatever? It's a huge emotional control. Mm. If I looked at a standard test now, I'd be looking for that emotional intelligence. Yes. So can they regulate themselves in the face of adversity. Yeah. And, and that's what we're looking at. You know, um, performance isn't always enjoyable. In fact, at an elite level, it's a really difficult job. So we're talking about somebody being able to, to do their job in the face of adversity. Um, the, the second attribute that we found is that those elite athletes or those best-performed athletes were able to con- make uncomfortable situations more comfortable whether that be pressure or whether it be um, learning or whether it be a physical or a even a, a temperament thing, they were able to make uncomfortable situations more comfortable. They saw that, that uh, there was duress a part of it and it was accepted. They were able to hurt themselves for longer. They, were, they dealt with the public expectation and the pressure. They dealt with being the best rather than being scared of it. And I think that from often an Australian point of view where we, we have this cultural identity for the underdog, um, these guys were accepting that it's okay to be good, which from my point of view is a really, really important thing. The third element was that they embraced the concept of performing under pressure. And in fact, they looked at putting themselves under more pressure all the time. Now, whether that be a training thing or a competition thing, they sought to experience more pressure, where a lot of athletes seek to minimise and get rid of pressure. And I think that that's a really important difference. 
Most athletes, if I'm meeting with them and work with them, in the very first instance, everybody seeks to minimise or avoid pressure. And to then have the best of the world going, no, no, pressure's good. There's a reverse logic for most people. Most people can't understand that. And I think that's a really clear defining point. And is the intention to um, essentially place more pressure on themselves to get better, or is it like an inherent love of, of that pressure? I think it's both. And I think there was a very big contrast between, I think we ended up, I think it was 18 people we ended up um, meeting with. And so they were across a whole heap of different sports, some of them team sports, some of them individual sports. But once again, there was these key attributes. And some people just, and I suppose it, it led to that fourth point, there was a complete commitment, almost an obsession, to getting better and improving every single day. And it wasn't just um, one aspect. It was, became a, a lifing or a completely holistic thing that they wanted to push the limits in almost everything that they were doing. And, and I think that it, it became it becomes such a big part of who they are and the way that they were, whether they were swimming or, or whether they were riding a bike, there was that same expectation and drive in a lot of other parts of their lives, whether it be relationships or finance or academia, they were wanting to push it. Not everybody did, but there were certainly chunks of people that they were going, you know what, it's across the board. They go hard at everything that they do. The, the fifth point was something that we was a bit contentious when we were looking at all the different patterns, and it was probably the thing that we spoke most about um, in terms of the themes, was that the people that, that were high achievers seemed to achieve more of their potential. When we looked at the athletes that were, you know, outside the, the top 10 or 20, often there was a comment made that, oh, they're incredibly talented, but, you know, or they're mentally strong, but yes. they didn't have that complete package. And often they were talked about that, that, you know, have got more potential. Now, whether it be a combination of, all of those other mental attributes, or whether it be a standalone attribute in itself, they were great at getting every bit out of themselves. Yeah. How did you determine potential? Well, it's one of those things that when we, we interviewed the athlete, now a lot of the athletes were at that transition point. Some of them, had, by the time we concluded at the interviews, we was after Athens. So a lot of the athletes were then getting ready to set themselves up for Beijing, even though that it was, you know, three or four years away. A lot of athletes had finished Athens going, you know what, I'm going to compete at Commonwealth Games in Melbourne and then I'm done, or I'm done straight after Athens. Hmm. And they were often reflecting about what they'd achieved in their career and how that they had developed and what they think they had left to do or where they could find more. And at that point, there was the acceptance of, you know what, I've just about done I've, you know, done this, I've done that, I've done that, all in my daily training environment, and I'm really satisfied. And I suppose that's the thing that when an elite athlete's satisfied with their preparation, where they're satisfied with their performance, it's like, well, that's it. Mm. If they think that there's a gaping hole in it or there's more to achieve, you've got to say, well, hang on, let's go out there and get it. Why aren't we doing that? So it was, often it came back to that self-assessment of where, you know, what they'd achieved personally and in terms of the way that they conducted themselves day in, day out as an athlete. 
So it's sort of like that point number four you made about the commitment to getting better. If they're satisfied with it, then it, it might imply that there's, there may be no getting better. They've, they've reached their limit. Well, one of the athletes said that I hated the feeling of walking away from the track knowing that I didn't give it everything in that session because I know that when I then lined up to race, it was going to come back. You know, the, the feeling of laying on the track, crawling around on my hands and knees for, you know, sometimes 15, 20 minutes after the last effort, trying to work out whether I can stand up and work, walk to my car without throwing up, was a thousand times better than the doubt that entered my head uh, just before I'd walk out onto the track for a final. Mm. So there's a combination of different things there. There's that whole, I want to control everything. There's that whole, I'm going to make uncomfortable situations more comfortable. I'm going to deal with the pressure. And there is that, that obsessive commitment to going, I need to get everything out of myself. Mm. When I came back from... Um, my Olympic experience in Beijing. So I, at this stage, um, when I started the, the interviews, I'd only been at the Institute since 2001, had been involved with athletes that went to Manchester, Commonwealth Games 02, and had, had worked with a number of athletes in preparation for Athens. But by the time I'd gone to Beijing and then come back, I think my scope as a psychologists had certainly grown in terms of what I saw as important. And some of the things that if I would could go back and re-interview or, or had the time to look through those transcripts again, I'd be looking for some different patterns and certainly some more personal patterns. And some of those personal patterns would be about the self-belief an athlete has of themselves, how they see themselves, but certainly looking at um, risk-taking capabilities Athletes have to be phenomenal at taking risks because when you walk out and half the world is watching your performance, a part of your brain is either going to go, oh, my gosh, this is fantastic, this is what it's about, let's do it. This is what I've trained for, let the automated response take over. And equally, there's another part of your brain that's going, oh, my gosh, whole world is watching, don't stuff it up now. Mm. And it's about having the skills to be able to make sure that at the end of the day, we get a performance out under pressure that is, that is reflective of what we've been able to do in training. Under that type of pressure, it's really difficult to, you know, have that performance that is incrementally better than what we've trained at more often than not, the performance comes off a little bit because of that amount of pressure. Mm. But it still takes that personal risk of being able to go out there and put it out there. With these, all of these traits, have you seen them applied outside of sport as well? I, I do more and more corporate work now, but I also work with pilots as they're doing upgrades for their aircraft licence and also work with surgeons as they're sitting their exams and they're exactly the same traits. I'm looking at the same traits being general, generalised across all elite performers, especially when there's significant amounts of pressure. And that's the thing that makes it unique. Mm. It's not the, the skilled for average Joe. I, the, the example that I use is during Beijing Olympics, I had to call my dad for his birthday. So here I am in the Athletes' Village at Beijing Olympic Games and I'm calling my dad for his birthday, wish him happy birthday, blah, blah, blah. And 
I made the silly mistake of asking Dad what he'd been doing. <laughs> and Dad didn't... The only way he knows how to answer is, I've been watching Olympic Games on television, you dickhead. That's what everybody else does. And I got off the phone and I've gone, you know, that sort of makes sense. Normal people sit at home on their couches watching the Olympic Games on television. It is completely abnormal to go and perform because most people don't like pressure. Mm. Most people aren't committed. Most people don't like feeling uncomfortable. Most people worry too much about their performance and performing well or what other people think, and that then directly influences how they feel about themselves. And I'm like, that's completely right. Those concepts of being normal... I don't teach people to be normal. I, my job is to teach people to be freaks because you, if you respond normally, it means that you're going to get exactly the same result as everybody else. I look at the, the skills that elite athletes use. They're not normal skills that normal everyday people have. However, if they start picking those skills up, I believe that they're going to improve their, they potentially improve their performance, their performance consistency, a whole heap of other attributes come out of that as well. So there'll be a lot of athletes, you mentioned before about, you know, there'll, there'll be athletes who show, you know, high levels of skill and, and train, train well, train hard and all that sort of thing, but don't respond well to pressure. What's your approach with an athlete who may come to you and say, I'm okay until I have to perform and, and then my performance has dropped? For me, I take probably a threefold approach. One is I want to understand what they're doing in competition to see what are the key triggers of what's causing that and in what situations does it happen all the time. So I really want to understand that. The second element is I want to see how they train and what they practice. I spend a lot of time watching athletes and and discussing and, and going through their programs so that I look at how they're learning not to think. For me, training is about teaching ourselves to not think. Mm-hmm. And then the, the third element is looking at why we're doing this. Why are you an athlete? What do you want to achieve? Why is it important to you? And understanding that real personal approach of, you know, what's in it for me sort of thing. That's the underlying thing. I'm doing this work because, and it's, I guess, the, the deeper the, the reason why they're doing it, the more likely they are to commit to it. Uh, for me, it's probably a question I didn't ask enough of when I first started as, as a psychologist. Mm-hmm. But for me, now is probably my number one question. It's the most important question that we get right. Because if we're doing it for the wrong reasons, we're ultimately sabotaging ourselves because we can get away with it until we hit that extreme pressure. Yeah. And the minute we hit that ex- extreme pressure, if the foundations are slightly off, the whole place has the potential to come crumbling down. When you ask that question, what sort of responses make you think, wow, this person's... I like that response. I like what this person's thinking and how they're thinking and why they want to do what they're doing. I ask it in two, two ways because I find that... People are pretty smart and people like to impress. So you don't always get that degree of honesty when you first ask. So I'll ask it straight up by going, you know, so why is this sport important to you? So why is golf important to you? And 
there'll be often there'll be that oh I want to enjoy it I I want to challenge myself I want an achievement I I want to prove it to myself and they sort of extend from there and a lot of those there are the wrong answers do I enjoy it when I'm shooting you know ten over my handicap or I know that I've got better golf in me and it's just not coming out today. No, I don't particularly enjoy it. And who are you achieving for? When you say achievement, what, who are you achieving for? Oh, I, I'm wanting to do it for myself. Oh, so how does, how does the way you feel about yourself change if you achieve or you don't achieve? And often there's those answers that they think are right or have been a big part of their life for such a long period of time, but they don't know how it sabotages their performance. Yeah, and they're great questions because they there's no hiding from the need to search internally to come up with a response to, to the, what you've asked them. They're fantastic. I often follow it up by saying, so why does somebody want to climb Mount Everest? Why does somebody want to endure that type of torture? Mm. And and depends on the generation because there is a couple of generational differences. But it, often it keeps on coming back to the achievement and and the recognition with peers and recognition with other people. And often if we get caught up on that, that direct comparison between us and other people just puts us on that backward step straight away because there is we're applying more and more and more pressure all the time. And so, so again, what comes back to what's a good response? For, for me, I'm wanting to hear somebody going, you know what? I want to see what I can do. It's about me. It's about the challenge. It's about me developing. It's about me growing. Um, I want to see how low I can go. I want to see how fast I can run. Mm. It's, it's less about, oh, I've got to win this. I've got to prove it to that. I need everybody else to see that I'm good. It becomes back to that. We're trying to get people to that point of self-actualization where they completely accept themselves and go, this is where I want to be. Yeah. Now, it comes back to one of those... Something as really simple as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If we can get people to accept themselves and accept who they are and those people around them, they're doing it for potentially more of the right reasons. It makes it easy to perform under that pressure. I remember a while, while ago, and I've heard you present a number of times, and one theme that comes up or one statement that comes up is that about the best predictor of success. So you said the best predictor of success is the way an athlete trains. Do all the work that I find it really enjoyable. <laughs> I don't do it, go out and do it myself anymore. I, I was at training yesterday for a for sporting team and it was quite interesting watching the mistakes that people were making in training. Yet I guarantee you, that the mistakes they were making yesterday morning and again last night are going to be the same mistakes they're going to make out on the field on Saturday and Sunday. Are these technical errors you're talking about? Oh, I think there's both. I think there's... I, I look for four attributes as a part of um, sports performance. They're the technical, the tactical, physical and mental. Yeah. What, when I'm working with somebody, I'm looking for the science in, in what they're doing and why they're doing it. I want to see the science of taking a set of skills, putting it under repetition and rehearsal and saying, well, this is where they're going to be in four, six, eight, twelve, sixteen weeks. Mm. And it's understanding how, it's as much as them understanding or their coach understanding how repetition and the volume and the intensity of repetition impacts on the ability to recall it accurately. So whether it be 
no balls in cricket or whether it be chipping in golf. I'm looking for patterns in behaviour and I'm looking at how disciplined are they and are they creating, are they creating pressure in the way that they train. If I'm making repetitively mistakes, whether they be technical or, or tactical or, or physical or mental mistakes, those mistakes are going to be well practiced by the time I get to competition. Hence, my recall of those things is going to be impacted negatively. So, so however you train, you are actually training for what you're most likely to produce in competition. When I, when I first started working as a sports psych, I thought my job was to teach people to think teach them to be confident, teach them to be positive, teach them to feel good in the moment and get them to have performance plans so that they can think their way through everything. I disagree with all of those things now. In fact, I teach people the complete opposite. I teach people that the role of confidence and being positive and feeling good as a part of performance is, is less important than most people think it is. I'm more interested in how somebody plays and they go around the golf course when they have no confidence when they're being completely frustrated and they're overcoming diarrhea mm. you know you're in the fourth round you're only three shots behind the lead i'm really interested to see how you step up in that adverse situation equally i'm interested to see how you perform when you're under maximum pressure and you're leading by three strokes with four to play because it's those concepts of can I control the six inches between my ears to just swing the golf club? This morning I've worked with a young guy who's going down to Q school start of December. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the concept of just swinging the club versus thinking about the card and thinking about the score and thinking about what everybody else is doing. He, he had a round three weeks ago. He was um, seven under after 11. Okay, pretty impressive start. Not a bad start. <laughs> That's right. Not a bad start. However, he finished at seven under because there was a realisation that I'm shooting well today. Oh, my gosh, I could shoot really low. And he talked himself into thinking more mm. rather than going, you know what, I'm going okay today. Let's just keep it relaxed. Uh, obviously, I'm playing well today. I don't have to worry about it. But let the golf take care of the business. Then he's also thinking about the consequences of, or, or thinking of the future as well. You know, what if I play well? Oh, if I keep going, I can shoot whatever. He's taking himself out of out of a a mental state that's obviously working for him, and then he's complicating it by thinking. Yeah. Most of the surgeons that I work with talk about their golf games while doing surgery because they know exactly what they're doing. They're completely competent in what they're doing. In fact, they don't have to think about what they're doing. If I've got somebody who's doing an operation looking at a checklist... I'm highly concerned about laying on the table. Mm. Highly concerned. If Even if it's his first time, if he's looking at a checklist, ticking them all off, I'm not laying on that table. Yeah, his focus is on the checklist and not on you. 100%. Yeah. So it, it comes back to being able to functionally perform without thinking or minimising those thought processes. And that's where the training kicks in. So your training is to automate not just the technical stuff, but also the mental stuff. And and I think that having a structured training program written out so that it is scientific, so that we can replicate, we can modify, we can investigate, we can change, and we can be completely analytical about it becomes really important. I think golfers make some serial or some pattern mistakes. This was bad on the weekend, so I'm going to scrap all my training and focus on the stuff that was bad. Mm. 
not only does it imply that you don't have a lot of belief in, in what you're doing in terms of your preparation, but also means that you're incredibly reactive. And for me, there should be an overall training plan that's periodized in terms of this is when I'm peaking, this is when I'm doing my volume, this is when I'm doing my intensity, so it is scientific. Yeah. Too many golfers train on just gut feel. With golf, as particularly being a, a fine motor skill sport, I find a lot of the uh, the work that's done to try and build to a peak, it's no guarantee of success, but it's also more likely to bring about success than not having that structured plan in the first place. It's probably one of the most frustrating things that I see is that people are good because of their talent, but at some stage that talent's not enough. Mm. And it actually requires development, hard work, because somebody who has less talent, who has more belief, who has works a little bit harder, is going to kick their butt. And how trainable are those things like belief in yourself, the ability to work hard if that work ethic hasn't been there in the past? How trainable are those things? Highly. It all depends on whether the, the person is committed or not. Mm. Always look at the behaviour of people and saying, we actually only do the things that are important. Tell me something today that you did that was completely unimportant to you. We don't do things that are unimportant. They're all scaled on importance. You know, I I dump my clothes in the middle of the my bedroom, on the bedroom corner. It may be less important for me to take them to the the laundry every single day. But I tell you, it's important that I keep my wife happy because <laughs> if I don't take them every morning, I know that I haven't taken them. It's a trade-off, but it still comes back to things that are important. It's, it's prioritising the highest importance. Mm. If it's not important, this doesn't happen or it doesn't happen properly. So that then ultimately comes back to that big question that you ask the athletes now, you, why are you doing this? 100%. In, yeah. I don't have anything that, as a sports psych, that not every other sports psych doesn't already have. And it's not that people can't learn it from a thousand different books, but it's about having that genuine approach of going, okay, so explain to me why we're doing this. That's my number one question. Because if the foundations of our behaviours are off-centre, aren't aligned, aren't congruent, it's going to implode under pressure. Now, I can imagine that someone will ask, you'll ask that question of an athlete and they'll give you a, a canned response, a, a typical response, a, a, a non-thought-out response. How I want to you... achieve. I, I've, I've had these goals since I was a kid. Yeah. So for, for, a, for someone listening to this podcast who's asking themselves that question and thinking, I don't really know the answer. I, I, how, can I, how can I flesh out what that answer might be? What advice would you give to them? Uh, for, for me, it's probably the most powerful question, but also the scariest question at the same time. Mm-hmm. We have to start being completely honest with ourselves. And for a lot of athletes, and for a lot of people, it's just the people thing. Rarely are we giving ourselves that complete honesty of going, well, why am I really doing this? You know, what is actually my pure, the purest motivation? And I think when we do that, 
But we can only do that in a couple of situations. We need to slow down. At the pace that everybody lives, we're not going to engage or even listen to that type of dialogue properly to actually pull it apart and understand it. Mm. So we, we need to slow down. And then, being completely honest, just ask you the simple, simple questions first. Why did I talk to that person that way? Why did I choose that? And when we, we start listening to that in a dialogue, we can then extend it to, you know, the bigger questions. Mm. Why did I choose that? Oh, because I'm competitive. Yeah, but why am I competitive? Because I like the feeling of winning. I like the feeling of beating people. It makes me feel like when I beat somebody, I'm better than them. Mm. Then we're pulling it apart, and then that becomes where we can start manipulating stuff. And so that can obviously be uh, private and painful conversations. <laughs> oh, completely. But if we're never yeah. going to be that honest with ourselves, we're never going to get real change or real growth anyway. That's fantastic. Look, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting. We've looked at you know, the five themes that you talked about, which, you just, which um, we went through earlier, and then those extra couple about the self-belief and risk-taking capabilities but so much of it shines through about the absolutely paul thank you so much i really enjoyed the chat and i'm sure the the listeners will enjoy it as well so what you can do is please go to paul's website which is uh, focusperformancepsychology.com.au look him up engage with him you'll understand that he's going to ask you the hard questions which are going to help you with your performance whether that's a sporting business or any other performance whatsoever paul thank you so much thanks pistol absolute pleasure and i wish you continued success too mate thank you